As I said earlier, it's good to be back. This, uh, this pulpit's becoming home to me, and I miss it on Sunday mornings when I'm not here. That certainly happened last week, although I was in a very good place with a bunch of good people, right? We continue this morning with our series on the church. We've been looking at this for three or four weeks now, and we need to understand what we are to do as a church as a church body, what God's design is for the church. Remember, we started this series with a message from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me read you verse 14 and 15. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to believe and behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. In that first sermon, we looked at what that means, that we protect and we promote the gospel of Jesus Christ in everything that we do. Then the second message that we had, we saw that central to this uh, pillar and buttress of the truth is that there is a a real need for there to be a, a loyalty to a church and that church membership matters and that unity is a big piece of this pillar and buttress, and we need to be in unity and harmony like John 17 talks about, so that the world will know that God sent his son, Jesus Christ. That unity promotes a pillar and buttress of the gospel truth, and the world sees it and says, wow, God did something extreme. Then the next sermon we looked at, we were in Nehemiah chapter 8, and I showed you how I believe the Bible shows us that preaching is central, preaching is central to church. And when the Word of God is opened, there is something that happens to people that should happen to people, and there should be reverence for the Word. And I said, let's promote the Word and not the deliverer of the Word, right? And then last Sunday, Art stepped in and showed us the centrality of worship and how worship spins off of the opening and the reading of the Word of God, and that a church must be gathered together to worship in unity the risen Jesus Christ. Now today, we must look at Church leadership. Church leadership is a really, really big deal. I mean, you look in the world that we live in, in leadership, and I don't care if it's a corporation or an organization or a baseball team, whatever the case may be, leadership is crucial. And we see in the Bible that God has provided for his church two layers of leadership. What do you think the first layer is? The first leader in any church must be Jesus Christ. A church does not belong to a pastor. A church does not belong to a body of elders. A church doesn't belong to a denomination. A church belongs to Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say to Peter? Peter, upon this profession of faith, I will build my church. Jesus does the building, and it's Jesus' church. But we see in 1 Peter chapter 5 that there is a provision for under shepherds. So Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd of the church, and then he raises up under shepherds, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Listen to 1 Peter 5, 2 through 4. Peter writes, to elders, so I exhort the elders among you as, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, 
not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And listen to this. And he says, And when the chief shepherd, and that chief shepherd, that shepherd starts with a capital S. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there's a chief shepherd and there are under-shepherds. And the role of an under-shepherd, which is what I am, is to point you to the chief shepherd. And I vow to do that to you every time that we gather, whether it be on a Wednesday night occasion, whether it be Tuesday morning in a coffee shop. I will point you to the chief shepherd every time. So leadership is critical to the people to God. And I will say to you, and you will agree with this, I know, people very rarely, if ever, rise above the level of their leadership. It's rare for people to overcome poor leadership. And so this is a serious topic that we must consider. Listen to this. Proverbs 29, 18 says, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. We need to be a people that do not cast off restraint, that we restrain ourselves to this, and it takes leaders pointing us to this, for us to keep restraint. So this morning we're going to look at the church being a pillar and a buttress of the truth and that it comes off of leaders who are submitted to pointing a congregation to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. For these are the qualifications that God inspired Paul to write to Timothy and to write to us. These are the qualifications that God expects his elders, his under-shepherds, to adhere to. 1 Timothy 3, starting in 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must be, not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So we have here these qualifications that we need to look at at length. And I want you to keep in mind a couple of things as we look through these. There's some important things that you need to remember as I break through each one of these. First of all, this is not an exhaustive list. This is not everything that an elder must be about, but these are the core, most important, at a minimum, non-negotiable traits that every elder must embrace and embody day in and day out. Number two, I want you to notice as we go through these, Paul's focus is not on what an elder does. There's only one that talks about a task, and that's able to teach. The rest of them are about who an elder is. Who is he? So this isn't a job description, this is a character description. Character in eldership is king, is primary. We don't have instructions much on what he should do, but we have absolute clarity on who he should be. Notice also that these are all present tense qualities. This isn't a list of the elder could never have 
been this way or that way because we've all fallen. Some of us came to the faith early in life. Some of us came to the faith later in life. All have fallen. If these were always a perpetual tense instead of present tense, even Paul could not have been an elder. Paul could not have even written these instructions because Paul himself said he was the chief among sinners. Paul murdered Christians because of their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And yet he becomes an apostle. So this isn't dealing with, with men who have perfect pasts. We do not have perfect pasts. But we have repented. We have been saved by Jesus Christ. And we now adhere to these biblical principles in 1 Timothy 3 as best we can. And we fight hard to live these out day in and day out. These qualities are not for elders only. You need to be very careful as we go through this message. You cannot say, well, this is about six men at Rocky Point Baptist Church, and so I'm going to sit back and see what those six men ought to be about. I'm going to get the microscope out, and I'm going to look at them, and I'm going to see if I see these qualities in them. You need to do that, but you need to do that after you've done it to yourself first because every one of these qualities, every one of us in this room is called to. Period. This is not a unique list for six holy men here. This is a list for a congregation of people. And so Hebrews 13:7 says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their life. You are to imitate these character traits that we live out so long as we live out these character traits. If we're not living this, don't imitate us. But there's instruction for all of us to live these character traits out. Also, elders do not have a higher standard of living or a standard of, of, of holiness. But we do have a greater accountability to God for how we live this out before the congregation of people that we are under shepherds to. So it's not a higher standard that we live by. It's a higher accountability because we will have to stand and give account to the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, one day when he asks us and reviews how we have been under shepherds at Rocky Point Baptist Church. Same standard different accountability. So elders are ordinary men with an extraordinary calling. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17 to substantiate that. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And like I said, we will give an account to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. So this sermon this morning, this is a challenge from a couple of perspectives. Number one, it's a challenge to the current elders in this church. They didn't know what they signed up for this morning when they came in, but this is going to be a, a, an in-the-grill, challenging sermon that we are going to have to do an evaluation of ourselves to see are we fulfilling these qualifications. I want to tell you it was also a challenge this last week to study and prepare for this sermon, especially when I was with 20-something youth in Colorado on a mountain. <laughs> I had a challenge because when you review the characteristics, the qualifications of an elder, and you do it humbly, and I fought to be humble as I studied, is deeply convicting. I questioned a lot about myself on this trip. I got home, and I'm with Jennifer and Carabeth and Braden, and then there's family implications of this thing, and it's convicting because I say, I had to ask Jennifer yesterday, give me an audit right quick. Am I the husband of one wife in your eyes? Do you see that? Am I managing my own household well? It's convicting, and so it was a challenge 
this week to study, and it's probably going to be a challenge here to even say this sermon to you this morning. And I hope it's a challenge for the other elders that are here. But also it's a challenge to you to not lift out and check out and say, this is about elders. And it's a challenge to you to say, does this look like my life as well? And do I see this in my elders at this church? And if not, do I need to talk to one of them? Let's just be very transparent this morning. Because we're about being a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And leadership has got to be complying with Scripture's outline for the qualifications of an elder. So let's do this together. Let's go through these traits, and we're going to look at them one by one. I might cluster a few. We're not going to beat them to death. I've got a study of each one of these that I've beaten to death. And uh, this next Friday at 6 o'clock in the morning when we have our normal elder meetings, I want you to know that the elders are going to spend the front end of our elder meeting coming up going through each one of these to the nth degree. And that's how we're going to launch our elder meetings for the next several months. Okay? So we're going, to, we're going to audit ourselves and stay fresh in these qualifications to make sure that we are qualified men and that we are under shepherds that Christ would be proud of and honored by. So let's look at the first one. The elder must be above reproach. This is an opening statement that covers everything else that follows. Every one of these traits is predicated upon this, being above reproach. And he must be above reproach in four areas if you cluster these, these different traits that, that Paul outlines. He must be blameless in his public life, number one. He must be blameless in his personal life, number two. He must be blameless in his family life, number three. And lastly, he must be blameless in his spiritual life. That's what an elder must be if you sum up all of these traits. There can be no loopholes in his character. There can no, be no beachhead of sin in his life where sin just comes on shore in his life and wrecks havoc in his life and in his family and in his church. He's got to live a hypocrisy-free life. And if there ever is a legitimate accusation that can be brought against an elder... And guess what? We're fallen men and we are going to fall. If there's ever a legitimate accusation, he's got to be quick to confess and to repent. So we're not looking for perfect men. We're not looking for holy men that never sin. That's impossible. We are fallen men. But when we're confronted with it, pow, we respond with repentance. We're cut to the heart. We have godly grief. And we can prove ourselves at the end of the day innocent in the matter because Christ will forgive us. An elder must be able to say to his people, follow me as I follow Christ. And if we can't say that, you should not follow us. You should not. You should confront us in love, and if we don't repent, you should leave us. You should walk away from us and not eat from what we feed you. Now, we've got to be careful as I say that. There is a big difference between a bad day and a bad year. <laughs> We are fallen. We need to repent. That means we might have a bad day every now and then on one of these traits. But it can't be how we are defined day in and day out on these traits. We can't defy one of these traits day in and day out on an annual basis. We can have a moment, and that moment needs to be confronted and followed up with true godly repentance. So the second trait, let's look at that, the husband of one wife. I've said this often from this pulpit, marriage is the ultimate picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ on earth. 
It's the picture of a man laying down his life for a woman, one woman. And it's a picture of a woman submitting herself to that man in joy and delight. Not chauvinistic submission, biblical godly submission. And so an elder must, in his marriage, depict this gospel picture very, very clearly and very, very vividly and very, very joyfully. So if an elder cannot depict the gospel in his marriage with his wife, who in the world does he think he is to come be a shepherd in the church? No way. So we need to be loving our wives, and we need to be the husband of one wife. And what this means is it's a one-woman man. He has a single-minded devotion to one woman. Singleness to that one woman. And it is a devotion to her physically, yes, mentally, absolutely, and emotionally for certain. And he needs to be sold out to her and her alone. He gives his emotions to no other woman. He gives his mentality and his thoughts to no other woman, and he gives his body to no other woman, to any degree, to any degree. He's a one-woman man, just like Jesus Christ is a one-woman God. The church is his woman, his bride. And so, he has an exclusive and faithful relationship with this woman that God has given him. Now, this does not exclude single men from being able to be an elder. We cannot go to that extreme either. Paul never married, right? And Paul wrote this. So this is not an exclusion of single man. Uh, this does not mean that a man can only be married once in his lifetime. Some things can happen in a man's life before he is saved, and he's got divorce in his background. That does not mean he cannot be an elder once he is saved and he's seasoned in the faith. Okay? We don't need to go there either. If this was a, a warning against anyone being divorced being an elder, I believe for certain it would have been explicitly stated by Paul. But it's not. And so we're looking at the present tense, here and now, and every case needs to be looked at on a case-by-case basis to discern whether or not a man is qualified on this criteria. So let's go to the third one. And I'm going to cluster three together here. He must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. In the context of elder qualifications, these traits denote three things. Number one, he uses balanced judgment. He is sober-minded. He's got balanced judgment about what, how he makes decisions. Secondly, he must be free from debilitating excesses. He must have self-control. And number three, an elder must not be given over to rash behavior, erratic flying off the handle kind of behavior. The elder must embrace Solomon's warning in Proverbs 25:28. Listen to this, really short verse. I use this a lot in my personal life. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Isn't that clear? Isn't that vivid? A man without self-control is like a city that is broken into and it's left without walls. What do walls do for a city? Protect it. Self-control in the name of Jesus Christ protects us from the world that tries to pollute us. And so an elder fights for self-control against things like anger, laziness, lust, um, gluttony, or how about coarse joking, inappropriate joking and inappropriate humor. 
That's tearing down the walls and making one vulnerable to the adversary who's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking an elder to devour. Hear 1 Peter 5, 8 in that? And so a city left without walls is a city that's indefensible and an elder's lack of self-control makes him all the more vulnerable to the schemes of the adversary who is trying to destroy his ministry, our ministry, my ministry. I've got a big bullseye on me. The enemy would love to take me out. If the enemy can take out leadership, he can wreak havoc on a family or on a church or on a nation. He goes for the leaders. And so we need to be sober-minded and self-controlled so that he cannot have sway over our lives. I like this verse. The elder must, be, must view discipline and self-control the same way an athlete views training. I like that. Listen to this verse, 1 Peter or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 9, starting in 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. An elder embraces that passage of Scripture, disciplines his body like an athlete does, so that at the end of the day, he won't be disqualified. He will stand firm as a good under-shepherd to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Next, hospitable. An elder must be hospitable. Hospitality is the love of strangers, open to receive strangers, Generosity towards guests and an unconditional acceptance of people. Approachable. Hebrews 13.2 Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The Christian community is evidenced by hospitality amongst them. We've got to be hospitable to one another, not hostile towards one another. And it's the fruit that we must be known by. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Embrace one another. Embrace strangers in the name of Jesus Christ. Be hospitable. Be someone people like to be around. Be someone that people crave the presence of. So an elder must be hospitable. Next, able to teach. Teaching is the one task that's mentioned in this list. It's a task. It's not a qualification that is required of deacons, and we'll be looking at that in coming weeks. And it's not a requirement that is upon the lay people. This is a unique requirement. Able to teach is a unique requirement that's given out to elders. And this is not reserved for just one elder. This is all elders must be able to teach and able to fulfill this requirement. And here's the deal. We, we use this shepherd language all the time. Chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, under shepherd, Edward Heinze. When we teach, we are feeding the flock. This is feeding. You are a flock. I am an under shepherd. I also like to say that I am a sheep as well to the chief shepherd. And I like to say, I don't, I don't know if this is right, but maybe 95% of my life I'm a sheep, and about 5% of my life I'm an under-shepherd. But I am a sheep, and I need to be fed from the chief shepherd. 
and you need to be fed from the chief shepherd, and I need to be a conduit, and every elder needs to be a conduit that the chief shepherd feeds you. That's what an under-shepherd does. You're not my flock. You're Jesus Christ's flock. And I shepherd on his behalf, and I feed you what he would have you to eat. So we've got to be able to teach, which means we've got to be submitted to the Word of God. We don't need to feed you anything but what Jesus Christ would have you eat. And if we don't, may he strike us down and render us out of our ministry. I'll spend more time on able to teach next week, but that's one trait that every elder must have that doesn't apply to deacons or lay people, perhaps. Next, not a drunkard. There is nothing in an elder's life that can have mastery over him, whether this be alcohol, tobacco, drugs, okay, even food. He cannot be a drunkard. He cannot be a glutton. He cannot be enslaved to anything in this world. He cannot be enslaved to anything in this world, and this world is trying to capture our hearts perpetually. You know all about it personally. There's nothing in the place of Jesus Christ in the life of an elder that will give him peace of mind. He can find his peace only in Christ. Otherwise, he's not worthy of following. And then the next one. He must not be violent, but he must be gentle and not quarrelsome. Let's band those two together. Paul shows us first what not to be and then what to be. Not violent, but gentle. The New American Standard Version, I like this word, pugnacious. It says the elder should not be pugnacious. It's a very good word. I think that clearly, even if you didn't know what pugnacious means, you would assume it meant something not good, right? This sounds like a word that's negative, pugnacious. An elder cannot be a bully, a quick-tempered, manipulative, conniving, threatening man. Not at all. There's no place for that in the church. Instead, he must be gentle and kind and courteous and forbearing and, yes, long-suffering. Who is long-suffering to the ultimate? The chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, the God who we gather to worship. He was long-suffering with Jonah, was he not? An under-shepherd, an elder, must be like God was to Jonah with a member of his flock that's not adhering to the ways of the Scriptures. Bold. Aggressive, yes, but not pugnacious, gentle, and loving in the way that he leads the sheep. The Lord expects this of his under-shepherds because this is how he is. And I will tell you that it takes great power. It takes the power that only comes from submission to Jesus Christ to not be pugnacious. Every one of us, most of us men, if, you're, if you've got leadership traits you tend to be an aggressive man. <laughs> that's that's kind of how it happens. And we have to rein in this aggression or it will be pugnacious behavior towards the flock. Proverbs 16.32, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So some man may go conquer a city, but he's done nothing compared to the man that can rein in his anger and that can rein in his desire to be pugnacious. And that's who an elder must be. He must be powerful in his ability to submit himself to Jesus Christ. Next, an elder must not be a lover of money. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy 6 on this one. 
And I want you to listen for your own edification here as well. Yes, this is an elder trait that I'm going to talk about, but this applies to you very, very certainly. 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Remember, we're talking about no love of money. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Wow. What a warning against the love of money. Do you hear that warning to yourself? Do you hear that warning to us as elders? Do you see how that can corrupt us from the inside out quickly? Listen to the, to the words here that, that are describing the love of money. It's a temptation. It's a snare. It's a senseless and harmful desire. It plunges us into ruin and destruction. It's a root of all kinds of evils. It's a craving. It's a piercing that brings upon pangs. An elder cannot be about the love of money, right? Or it'll derail him, and it will have implications throughout the congregation. So as an elder, we must be content with what God's given us. We came into this world with nothing, and we'll go out with nothing materially but we go out with the glory of jesus christ as our lord and savior and that is where we find our contentment the love of money is a powerful drug and it can delude the judgment of even the best of men you have elders that love money you better watch out because it can delude their decision making and can sway them into making horrific decisions that are self-centered at best The love of money screams out to the world, Christ is not sufficient. He's not enough for me. I have no peace with him alone. I'm not satisfied with him. I need things of this world more than him. So next, now let's look at the last three. Next one is he must manage his own household well. And listen to what it says. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Simple wisdom here, right? Simple, simple wisdom. The elder must be a provider for his family. He must provide for them financially and emotionally and spiritually. And if the elder's not doing that, he's not qualified. You know why? An elder's family is his first church. Husbands and dads in this room, you are a shepherd to a woman and some children if God's blessed you with them at home. If you don't have children yet, you are a shepherd to a woman. That is a family. A man and a woman become one, and you have a family of two. Family doesn't mean just kids. You have a responsibility to shepherd them, just like I have a responsibility to shepherd this church. My first church is right down County Road 178, six-tenths of a mile. And if I fail at my home shepherding that little flock, 
I am disqualified from standing before you right here and now. Totally. There is nothing uglier than a pastor, an elder, who's got a wreck of a family, but a dynamic church. Ugly. It's disqualified. It's a fraud. This is serious business. And I stand before my wife and two kids saying this. I have to shepherd there well, excellently, before I can even come down the road and shepherd here. Serious business. And for you, each of you, you have to shepherd at home to honor the Lord with the calling that he's given you, men. That's a message to the men in this room. You have to get it done at home before you get it done at work or anywhere else. That's a flock that God's entrusted to you. So the elder is not a professional man who sacrifices his family on the altar of work. Mm -mm. Not at all. His priority is at home, and only then can he come up here and oversee a church. So he must manage his own household well, and only then can he care for God's church. Next, he must not be a recent convert. He gives us an explanation for this. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So an elder must be seasoned. He must be tested. He must be refined. He must be proven. He must be tempered like steel. He must be authentic before you lay hands on him. First Timothy what 5.22 says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Test a man before he becomes an elder. And then lastly, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So this is like the final bookend. The first one is an elder must be above reproach. And the last one is he must be well thought of by outsiders. Those are two bookends. How is an elder well thought of by outsiders? Well, it's right here in the text. He's above reproach. He's the husband of one wife. He's self-controlled. He's sober-minded. He's respectable and hospitable. On and on and on. Husband of one wife. He manages his own household well. When a man does that in his life, even those outside the church look at him and say, there's a respectful man. And now the church is promoted as a pillar and buttress of the truth because the leadership is complying with biblical standards. So... We are to be careful in conclusion. As we went through quickly these elder qualifications, we are to be careful when applying these to men who hold the office of elder. And there's two ways that churches go wrong on these. Number one is they lower these standards to fit the character of the man they want in the, in the position. Right? We cannot lower these standards and relax them a little bit because, well, he... He's really charismatic, or he really preaches well, or he's a good counselor, or he's really hospitable. And let's excuse some of these others. We cannot do that. We've got to find a man that fits these qualifications. And if not, we wait. But secondly, we can't also look for this holy man that doesn't exist. And we can't add to God's standard extra-biblical requirements. We have to be faithful to stick right here to 1 Timothy 1, 3, 1 through 7 and look for men that fulfill these qualifications and then look for men that live these out and hold them accountable to these day in and day out. 
And so congregations have to be careful to not raise the bar above and beyond Scripture or lower the bar above and below these qualifications. We've got to be right on, right true to these standards. Let me say this. No one, no one is entitled to the office of elder. This, this can't be, I, I'm an elder and so I can never relinquish this. It is not something I or any one of the other elders in this church are entitled to. Doesn't matter how long we've served as elders, doesn't matter how much we've done for the church, we are not entitled to this. So many men fail in one of these areas. And I'm talking fail, not have a bad moment where they repent and turn, but fail and embrace failure. And neither they or anyone else call them out on it. And they don't respect the office of overseer. And they don't walk away and say, I'm disqualified. And I, I take the ministry and the role of elder so seriously, I'm going to step out of it lest I tarnish it. That's not found very often. And the six of us need to say before you, and I think I'm doing that on their behalf here, if we fail in one of these, we must be able to stand before you and say, I am disqualified and I need to step down. Pillar and buttress of the truth. Not a pillar and buttress of my bank account or my reputation or my livelihood or my enjoyment. Pillar and buttress of the truth of Jesus Christ. And when we don't honor these qualifications, you shouldn't have to remove us. We should walk away. And if we won't, you should remove us. Pillar and buttress of the truth. Do we mean it or not? So we must continually self-evaluate in relation to these requirements. And that's why this last week of preparation for this sermon was so healthy for me. It, it's, it's guardrails. It made me look and evaluate each one of these areas of my life. And it kept me on this straight and narrow path. And I know where I'm getting close to the edge and where I'm strong in the center. And elders need to continually be reviewing these. And so, as I've said, we will do this starting this Friday morning. At 6 a.m., we will go through one at a time over the next couple of months and make sure that we are fulfilling these biblical requirements. And I hope and pray that that will make you trust us more. And so long as you see us living these out, you should trust us. You see us denying these, that's a grounds for no, no longer trusting and for leading out and bringing us to correction. When an elder sees a weakness in one of these areas, and define weakness, mild or big. When we see some mild, subtle weakness developing, we must be tenacious and address them before they become disqualifiers. And you know what? Every person in this room ought to do the same thing with their life. You must always be evaluating your life against Scripture, and where you see weakness, tenaciously go after it so that it won't disqualify you from the crown of glory that Jesus Christ has for you that day he comes again. But we as elders must always be about this, and no matter how weak that weakness is, let's go get after it, and let's clean it up and bring us back to full fulfillment of these qualifications. And as I said, an elder must take the calling seriously enough to be willing to step out of pastoral ministry should he never meet one of these biblical requirements. And it might be that he steps out for a season, or he steps out permanently. Don't know. It depends on the situation. 
but he's got to be willing to walk away. And the church, an elder believes, the church is bigger and more important than his vocation and his career objectives. This is a unique calling. Pastoring and shepherding as an under-shepherd to Jesus Christ. And we need to see it as that big and that unique. So what should you do? I've told you some things through the sermon that you should do with this. Last thing, I'm going to give you three things that you should do with this message this morning. The first one is pray for us. And we're going to look next week at, at what elders do and how the congregation is to relate to elders and how the elders are to relate to the congregation. So elders are going to get two sermons. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the tasks and the relationship between us and the congregation because we need to be healthy on this if we're to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. But you must, you must, in fact, you're called to pray for us. It's a command in the Bible. And we'll look at it next week. Pray for us that we remain faithful to Christ in fulfilling these qualifications. Number two, imitate us. And that's a command as well. You are called to imitate your elders so long as they fulfill these qualifications. So imitate us to the degree that we honor Christ in fulfilling these. And then lastly, hold us accountable. Okay, and that's being pretty transparent. As an elder, as one of six, I say, if you see us falling in one of these categories, you come to us boldly but in love and gentleness. One-on-one first, a couple of witnesses if we stiff-arm you, but come to us because we are fallen men too and we need you to hold us accountable to these traits so that the church of Jesus Christ at Rocky Point is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's pray.